Welcome to Preheated, kitchen wisdom and friendly chat from two friends who love to bake. I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. And I'm Stefan Cohn in London. Every week, we celebrate the successes, failures, learning, and laughs that go hand-in-hand with baking for those we love. Today, we'll see if spinach in our donuts was successful or just strange, and we'll introduce a gluten-free vegan cookie pie that relies on a cupboard staple we all know and love. Plus, Olay will join Stefan in Spain for the popular Globetrotting Gourmet segment. So grab yourself some coffee and get ready for some sweet talk. Andrea, this holiday season, I know that you sent quite a few baked goods through the mail, and that was a very lively exchange on our Facebook group talking about shipping costs and what travels well. Yes, indeed. And I just got from the library that book our listener recommended called The Flying Brownie. It's such a great book. (laughs) I love (laughs) it. Well, did you hear the news out of England that some Mince pies from World War II were recently discovered, still intact and perfectly edible. Oh, no. Tell me about that. So this is reported on the BBC, and a tin of mince pies baked during World War II has been put on display after being discovered, immaculately preserved under the floorboards of a hotel. So, of course, these treats, very popular in England during holiday time, they were probably a wartime gift from a mother to her sailor son, and were uncovered at the Locke Hotel in Douglas on the Isle of Man. They were actually found during a renovation in the late 90s and then put into storage and kind of rediscovered now, but have now been put on display for the first time. You may be wondering, how did mince pies stay so well for... 80 years. It's thought that the (laughs) airtight conditions under the hotel floor may have helped preserve the treats, They were addressed to Abel Seaman Phil Davis from his mum, accompanied by a letter signed, Best Love from Mum. I am not surprised because you sent me mince pies two Christmases ago, and they traveled for two weeks, and they arrived here in great condition. But you could have kept them for 80 years and would still be in festive form. Uh, You may be wondering why would he put them under the floorboards. I think that was almost the first thing I wondered. Yeah, I was curious about that when you mentioned that. Well, the curator of this museum that they are now at says, you know, if you're in a shared room with maybe five or six other men, you don't know them, they are strangers to you, you might want to protect what's yours, including some delicious homemade mince pies, <laughs> stick them under the floorboards. But I'm so sad this man never never got the chance to eat them. They speculate that he may have been called away on a training or something kind of, uh, you know, spur of the moment. It was wartime after all. Yeah. but. Um, He was from Birmingham, and uh, that was a very sweet note from his mom. And it also read, we shall be glad to see you when you do get leave. I loved this comment from the curator, Mr. Richardson, who said, this tin of mince pies illustrates the point that wars might be international events, but they impact on a very human level. So very sweet, kind of poignant with our favorite mince pies. You know, Stefan, one of the reasons I love that story so much, it does tie right in with this book I'm reading, The Flying Brownie, and it gives a brief history of the care package in the beginning. Now, you've heard of the phrase care package before, of course, right? 
Yes, absolutely. And I just always thought it meant, you know, a package packed with care or given with loving care. But it turns out this name actually originated with the creation of the Cooperative for American Remittances to Europe, which stands for CARE, and it started at the end of World War II. Oh my gosh, how did I not know that? Yeah, so the the origin of these shipments of care packages um, started in the mid-40s, and they do mention a lot about, you know, wartime and parents sending things to their soldiers, so... I loved it. And I know that that Facebook community was really lively with different suggestions. So no matter what time of year you are sending something, be sure to remember mince pies as well as all those other yummies that were on on the list. (laughs) Indeed. Stefan, here we are in the middle to the end of January. And you may not know this, but there are some very big national days coming up on our calendar. Oh, do tell. On January 20th, we've got National Butter Crunch Day. On January 22nd, we've got National Blonde Brownie Day. Now, let me ask you, what do you think National (laughs) Butter Crunch Day is? I mean, I know these holidays are made up anyway, but usually I know what they Mm. are when there's something like National Oreo Day or National English Mm -hmm. Toffee Day. But -hmm. what is Butter Crunch? I'm guessing Butter Crunch was like English toffee. That's what I would think. Okay. Some kind of candy. Yeah, Yeah, I Mm -hmm. I think so. Yeah, I'm going to look some more into that. I've decided to celebrate National Blonde Brownie Day. I'm assuming that means blondies. And I am going to try and make some blondies for my friend that gets the monthly delivery from me as part of that auction item. So I do love blondies, but like Mm. brownies, I cannot leave them in my house. So that is something I need to make and give away. Yes. And then on January 26th, we've got National Peanut Brittle Day. And I'm thinking I might celebrate with a suggestion from Jennifer over in our Facebook group. She gave us a recipe for a green chili pistachio brittle that looked so good. It did. And it reminded me right away of not only you, something that you would make, but our peppermint chili bark that we did back in our very first season. That had that very sweet but also spicy kick. That's right. I love a sweet dessert with a spicy kick. And so does my husband. So I'm really excited to try this. And I will report back and let you know how that turns out. Well, Andrea, this week we experimented with putting some spinach in our donuts. This was a first for both of us think we've both done our share of savory bakes that included some spinach but never a sweet this was a lemon spinach baked donut from a blog called veggie desserts and kate is the chef there i am very interested in how these little green goddesses worked out for you andrea let us know i am happy to report back this was a really fun recipe It starts off with adding your spinach to a pan and heating it until it's wilted. And then it says run under cold water to refresh. I don't understand why you want to refresh it. All you're going to do is drain it and squeeze out all the water. So um, I always have trouble when I'm doing that squeezing with spinach. I think I'm done and I think, you know, there's no possible way there's any more water in this. And then I squeeze it one more time and more water comes out. (laughs) But I did squeeze what I thought was all of the moisture out. And then the second step is to puree it well with that handheld stick blender. We talked about this last week in episode 107. You don't have one. I have one. I use it all the time. And let me tell you, this is 100 grams of spinach, which it says three cups. But as you know, with spinach, it cooks down to almost nothing. I could not get this to puree with my handheld stick blender because... There just wasn't enough mass. The The way the stick blender works is the blade is a little bit higher up. 
And okay. you need enough of the thing that you're trying to puree to get it up into the blades. And I did get it, I guess, smushed a little bit, but it definitely was not a puree when I was okay. done. It was more of a finely chopped mass, for lack of a better term. Yeah. And here is where I used my food processor, not having the handheld stick blender. How did that work out? It was the same problem. There just wasn't enough spinach going around. So what I did, instead of just putting my spinach in a pan, a dry pan, that seemed a little strange to me. I boiled it in just a little bit of water. Oh, I added water too. Okay, yes. And then I had that water left over that when I drained it off, I kept it back. And I just added it down into the feed tube of the processor until I could get a puree going. At that point, it pureed up nicely. It was like baby food consistency. Mm -hmm. I took it out, pressed it through a sieve and with the back of a spatula to get the remaining water out. So that worked great, but wasn't exactly her instructions. Yeah, I started to wonder if maybe I squeezed too much moisture out. I got a little too excited with getting that spinach completely dry, and maybe I should have left more moisture in it. Ultimately, I decided it was fine. I thought to myself that maybe next time I would just purchase some spinach juice or use my juicer, although, you know, the consistency of a juice is much different than that of a puree. So... I'm not sure what exactly I'm going to do. It was difficult to puree it, but I ended up with more chunks and leaves. And that did, I think, cause a difference in the final result. But from a taste perspective, I don't think it made a difference. Well, I think maybe you could actually use spinach baby food or even not baby food, but those toddler foods that come in a pouch, anything that's already pureed like that with no extra, you know, seasoning or flavoring or anything like that. I think that'd be a fine substitute here. Oh, what a great idea. Yeah, those pouches are so popular. I mean, you can get them in the grocery store. And like you said, they're not just in the baby food aisle anymore. I see them at Mm -mm. my coffee shop up at the desk when you're getting your coffee. Save you a few steps here too. Oh, good idea. So you take your spinach puree, you take some lemon zest, some lemon juice, some sugar, some milk, some melted butter, the egg, the vanilla, um, and you mix that all together. Then you, um, it says sift in that flour. I made a note there that I wrote no. Yeah, you know, sometimes (laughs) just no, just no. just not going to sift, okay? I just found that ridiculous. So I did not sift. And again, I, I claim it made no difference in the final result. And this is where I added that baking powder. Thank you so much yes. for giving me that heads up last week. I think this is another place where, do you remember a couple of weeks ago or months ago, you talked about the mise en place where you get all of your ingredients ready before you start? Totally, yeah. Yeah. This is one place where having mise en place would help you because if you had pulled your baking powder out of the pantry and it was lined up on the counter and you got to the end of step four and you would see your baking powder is still sitting there and you would go, aha, you know, and you could just toss it in at that point. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So um, I went ahead and mixed everything together. Like I said, I had definite um, leaves and pieces of spinach, but I didn't really care. I took that batter and I put it into a Ziploc bag. I snipped the corner off to make my own piping bag, and then I filled my donut molds. It says to bake for 15 minutes, but I was using the mini pan. Mine took... mm, I checked it at 11, and I still didn't think it was done. Mine actually took about 13 minutes for each one. And then you cool it in the tray for five minutes and then pop them out. Mine popped right out. I I used my Baker's Joy to spray the pan, so that worked really well. And I ended up with 36 donuts because I made three trays, and I have 12 donuts on each tray. 
that glaze that goes on top. That's just some powdered sugar with a little bit of lemon juice. And you sort of drizzle that over the, as it says, completely cooled donuts. I didn't want to wait until they were completely cooled because <laughs> I just think hot donuts are so much better than cool donuts. Oh, yeah. They are. It was really hard to sit there and wait for the icing. I did it. I did it. But it was hard. Of course you did. You followed the rules. (laughs) I did not follow the rules. I drizzled my glaze over. I gave one to my husband. And he right away said, oh, I really like this donut, but I don't like the glaze. And I was confused by that because I thought, what's not to like? And then he tried one again about two hours later. And he said, oh, my gosh, this is so much better. When he tried it and it was hot... It was something about the glaze not being set that it just didn't really taste good to him. I personally had no problem with it. But, um, yeah, he didn't really like it. He liked it better after about two hours. I love them immediately, and I love them after two hours. My daughter said to me, you're not fooling me with these little kale circles. (laughs) And I, I said, excuse me, these are not kale. I didn't tell her they were actually spinach. Um, But yeah, she wasn't a huge fan, but I thought they were fabulous. I got 36 of them. My husband ate one. I ate seven more, and then I put them away (laughs) for fear that I would continue on. I thought they were great. How about you? I I hear ya. I was so charmed by these little green machines. (laughs) I loved them. I thought they were so whimsical. It's just kind of silly to eat something this bright green. They reminded me, because I did the mini as well, they reminded me of kind of giant Fruit Loops, you know, the cereal Fruit oh, Loops. Oh, yes. It was a bright green color. It was so cheerful, and I just loved them. I thought they had a good donut texture. I did get a good puree on my spinach using the food processor, so I think that the color was really nicely incorporated, and it stayed bright green, which is so nice. Andrea, have you ever made those cauliflower or there's other vegetables like this and they're like purple or bright orange and when you boil them, then the color all drains away? I know. And you think, oh, I paid extra for that color and now it's gone. Exactly. So I was really not wanting that vibrancy to disappear in these donuts and it doesn't. It stays really vivid and green. You don't taste it at all? No. Mm Mm-mm. Yeah, not at all. The citrus drizzle was really nice flavor. I liked the zest there as well. They were pretty. They were petite. They were a little bit healthy. It was a huge win. I think it would be really fun to make them. I think last episode, you had mentioned St. Patrick's Day. That's an obvious choice Mm -hmm. for sure. But what about April Fool's or Halloween? You could do it these other times. I mean, just eating a green donut, it's just silly and funny and made me laugh. I I really liked yeah, it. So I did too. I give it a huge thumbs up. I had the same experience that I had with our pumpkin donuts back in episode 47. When you're storing these, you do not want to put them in a plastic bag or a container with a lid on it because something about the baked donuts, they start to sweat if you, yeah. if you put them in a covered container. So odd as it might be, you sort of leave them out loosely covered and they'll keep better that way. Yeah, absolutely. Although I didn't have many left over <laughs> to have that problem. <laughs> well, that's mm-hmm. another way of solving the problem. So, And, you know, my my son, who is the perhaps pickiest eater when it comes to things that are green, yeah. he even had one. And he just, his I mean, his praise was resounding in that he was like, huh, not bad. I mean, to get the kid to eat something green, donut or not, I was thrilled. Yeah. So well done. Well done. Yeah. Thank you, Kate, from Veggie Desserts. <laughs> that was... 
your son did better than my daughter. Much more adventurous. I'm impressed. Up next week, we are making a deep dish cookie pie. This comes from another Kate. This is chocolate-covered Katie. And (laughs) this particular recipe has a secret ingredient. Stefan, you want to tell us a little bit about it? The secret ingredient this week, Andrea, is garbanzo beans. Two cans or 500 grams total. Once you drain off that liquid, don't throw it away. That's aquafaba. You can use it as a vegan egg. You can use it to make a meringue. You can do all kinds of stuff with that delicious liquid that's in your bean can. That's right. Then you've got, in addition, some quick oats, applesauce, oil or nut butter, your choice there, some vanilla, baking soda and baking powder, some salt, brown soft sugar or unrefined sugar, and a cup of chocolate chips. Andrea, I am not familiar with this site. This is a new website for me and for the show, but I have it on good authority from a vegan friend that this is a, she does desserts, vegan desserts really well. Okay. So hopeful that that is something that turns out for us also. I'm hoping so. I know I have friends who make desserts with beans in them. Specifically, I'm thinking of listener Dorothy who does the black bean brownies. And I personally have never done the beans in the dessert unless it was, you know, the dessert hummus. Of course, I did that. But that's really almost the only ingredient is the beans. So it's not like a substitute. And I've done the aquafaba. So I'm really curious about this one. You know, last year in January, we tried doing some substitutions with brownies. Might have even been two years ago now that I think about it. Where, yeah, I think it was. Yeah, where we didn't have as much success. And so I'm a little trepidatious on this one. Is that a word? Trepidatious? <laughs> it's a good word. It's like a 10-point word. Yeah. I'm a little nervous about this. And I'm hoping that it turns out well because it is a lot of ingredients. And I love a deep dish and I love cookies and I love chocolate chips. So it's got everything I love in it. And I love garbanzo beans. So my fingers are crossed that this one turns out well. For me, too. And I think the key here is it's like those kind of gooey skillet pies. That's what you're going Mm -hmm. for. Not necessarily like a batch of a a tray cookie or something like that. So I think that might be good for the texture to remember that. Also, if you want to make this truly vegan, do check your chocolate chips. Not all chocolate chips are created equal. I have some vegan Belgian buttons that are indeed. So if that's really important to you, uh, make sure that you are using a vegan chocolate chip. I got those online. I think they're pretty readily available these days. Yeah, I am going to pick up the vegan chips at my co-op. I don't use those on the regular, but when I have my friend visiting who is dairy-free, I always make sure I grab those, and I know they're good. So I'll definitely use those. Thanks for the reminder on that. So remember, we will have a link to both of those recipes. They were the charming green baked spinach lemon donuts from Veggie Desserts. And this week's Bake Along is the deep dish cookie pie from Chocolate Covered Katie. We will have links in our website for our show notes for this episode, which is episode 108. That's at preheatedpodcast.com, as well as on our Facebook group. Listeners, it's time for another globetrotting gourmet segment, and this time we're jetting off to Spain. Stefan, you and your family visited the Canary Islands and mainland Spain over New Year's. But before you start telling us about all the fabulous food, please orient me. Where are the Canary Islands? Oh, right. So the Canaries are a chain of islands off the west coast of Africa in the Atlantic Ocean, and they are the southernmost community of Spain. And historically, they served as a stopping point for galleons. Oh, wait a minute. Sorry, what's a galleon? 
Oh, okay. So a galleon is a sailing ship used in Spain in the 15th through the 17th centuries. Okay. They were traveling to and from the Americas, and that was during the days of the mighty Spanish Armada. But today, the Canaries are a lovely, warm holiday spot just four hours from London. And we stayed on the northernmost island called Fuerteventura. Okay, now that I've got that good geography lesson, let's get down to the nitty-gritty food. Spain is well-known for many savory dishes like paella and tapas, but I admit I'm not very familiar with their sweeter offerings outside of things like flan and churros that I see offered at restaurants. Neither was I, and we certainly ate a ton of delicious savory food, our favorite being the famous thinly sliced Iberian ham, which we ate at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Mm. If you aren't familiar with that specialty, it's like a prosciutto, though in my book it's tastier. Yummy. We also drank a lot of their delicious kava, or sparkling wine. It was New Year's after all. (laughs) But the sweets were a real eye-opener, especially due to the Christmas season. Oh, so some specialties just for the holiday? Yes. So first of all, the Spanish, although they do celebrate Christmas, have a much bigger celebration on Epiphany, or Three Kings Day, which is when the Magi are said to have reached the baby Jesus with their gifts. So the holiday season was still very much in full swing. We enjoyed a seasonal cookie called a mantecado. It was like a dense and chewy Mexican wedding cake, but in various flavors like lime or chocolate. Everywhere we went, there was a basket of these brightly wrapped cookies on offer. I'm not a huge Mexican wedding cake fan, but I really loved these. Oh, darn it. You should have taken me with you. I love (laughs) Mexican wedding cookies. In fact, I made several batches this year and gave them away as holiday gifts. On New Year's Eve, I ate a custard called Saboras de Matiera, which translates to English as a taste of my land. Mm. It was a lightly almond-flavored custard with a crunchy topping that looked from afar like spun sugar, but upon eating it, I discovered it was more like shredded wheat. Oh, (laughs) yeah. And, um, oh, Andrea, our hotel had a chocolate fountain on New Year's Eve, which always makes me chuckle and think of you after our discussion with etiquette expert Arden Kleiss in episode 38. Oh, you really hit the two ends of the dessert spectrum there. Shredded wheat and a chocolate fountain. (laughs) (laughs) Anything else special on New Year's Eve? Yeah. So on New Year's Eve in Spain, it's customary to eat 12 grapes in the seconds before midnight to ensure sweetness in the new year. It is shockingly hard to eat grapes quickly, especially (laughs) as they were really large and seedy. And after indulging in a few glasses of kava, it seemed like a potential choking hazard. Fortunately, my husband and I succeeded and toasted the stroke of midnight with an empty box of grapes. But Andrea, I have to tell you, sometimes they don't use grapes. They use raisins. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Well, I won't hold that against them. Now, you were also in Madrid. Tell us a little bit about what you were able to eat while you were there. So the most famous Spanish dessert may be the churro, which many people are familiar with. Those are the skinny ropes of dough fried in olive oil. In Spain, they're usually served with hot chocolate, but this is more like hot, thick chocolate pudding than the beverage many of us are used to. Hmm. You dip the dough into the chocolate and, as one of our guidebooks said, go to heaven for about four euros. Oh. I had eaten churros in California many times, influenced by the Mexican culture there, but the ones I'd had always came topped with a cinnamon sugar mixture, so the chocolate was new to me and really delicious. We ate ours at a famous Spanish institution, Chocolateria Sanguines, 
which has been operating since 1894 and is open 24-7. I was fascinated to see that the churros are fried in one very long rope, then coiled on a cutting board, and then cut into pieces. Mm. And they make thicker pastries, too, called porous. Chocolateria. Drinkable chocolate pudding. Open 24-7. This is my <laughs> kind of place. I think you mentioned that they've attracted some famous clientele. That's right. So in addition to the cones, famous <laughs> guests and churro fans have included President Jimmy Carter, Stevie Wonder, and David Hasselhoff. Well, the only thing that could take my mind off the churros and the chocolate was if those three were all there at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> what else did you find delicious while visiting Madrid? We love to take a family cooking class when we're on holiday, and we cooked a delicious lunch with Chef Gabriela Lamas on our last day there. She was so lively and entertaining with lots of good food and colorful history. We made a seafood pasta paella called a fidua, a classic Spanish potato omelet. And Andrea, she boiled the potatoes in oil, not water. Oh. Several delicious tapas, including pepper and anchovy skewers, and a chicken dish that was more like a korma. And Gabriela explained that's because Spanish cuisine is heavily influenced by its Muslim history, and korma is a dish from Muslim rulers of India during the 10th through 16th centuries. Oh, this all sounds so amazing. But I haven't heard about your dessert yet. Are you <laughs> saving the best for last? I sure am. We made a classic Santiago almond cake, which is an unleavened cake with just four ingredients. Almond meal, eggs, sugar, and citrus zest. And we were lucky enough to use lemon and orange from Gabriella's own trees. Oh. Andrea, this is your ultimate one bowl cake. Oh, not to mention, it's naturally gluten and dairy free. Wow. And I saw a picture of your daughter decorating the top. Tell me about that. Right. She used a beautiful silver shaker and dusted the top, and the top was covered with a cross stencil. She dusted it with icing sugar, then peeled off the stencil, and the outline of the cross remained. Santiago, or St. James in English, is the patron saint of Spain, so this dessert honors him and has even been given special dispensation by the EU for a protected geographical indication. Oh. Gabriela told us it was probably influenced by both Arabic and Jewish cultures. It's made with nuts, which is a popular ingredient in Arabic cuisine, and it's unleavened, which is important for Jews during certain holidays. Oh, what a rich history for a cake. And it sounds so simple, but I saw that picture and it turned out stunning. Did you eat it plain? No, we ate it with a fresh fruit salad and, again, that hot chocolate sauce, very similar to the one we had with churros. This cake was so easy and so delicious, and I really, fingers crossed, hope to make it again. And it seems like a cake you could eat any time of day. Quick slice for breakfast, with your tea, after dinner. And as you mentioned, despite it being centuries old, it adheres to a very modern sensibility. It's gluten and dairy-free. Well, I really hope to get to Spain very soon to try some of these delicacies or perhaps whip up a Santiago almond cake in my own kitchen. Thank you so much for your on-the-ground reporting. As they say in Spain, el gustos es mío. My pleasure. Well, the timer's buzzed, and we've got to get the icing onto this episode. Join us next week to hear our thoughts on putting beans into the cookie batter and listen in as we introduce not one but two final veggie-forward desserts to finish off our delicious month. Plus, just in case you were feeling this month was a little too healthy, Andrea will fill us in on her recent New Orleans bakery crawl. 
Remember, you can find us and our featured recipes on our website, preheatedpodcast.com, and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where we're at Preheated Pod. If you like our show, please tell a friend and subscribe. Also consider ranking and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you download our show. Until next time, I'm Stefan Cohn in London. And I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. Thanks for listening and sweet dreams. Preheated is written, hosted, and edited by Andrea Ballard and Stefan Cohn in association with 24th Floor Productions. You're making me say Olay again. <laughs> this is the third time. You can just cut it out. <laughs>